Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. If you want to support It's Good to Know and the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. I remember in Brooklyn, right in the heart of Brooklyn where we were going to school, they hung up this big sign saying, only you can prevent forest fires. And we all looked at each other and said, what's a forest? (laughs) It's really beautiful here. Unbelievable. I know it gets hot, but... No, <laughs> And in Minnesota, it gets cold. So, so what are we talking about tonight? Afterlife. Comes a certain point, a certain age, when you start thinking about the hereafter. You know, you open the fridge and you wonder what you're here after. <laughs> that age, that's what I'm talking about. There's that old question about, is there life after death? It's actually a silly question. Of course there's no life after death. Death means you died. So of course there's no life after death. The real question is, can life die? It can't. Just like death can't live, life can't die. So the question is a silly, misleading question. The real question is, when something is alive, can it die? And the answer is no. It can't. But here's the problem. A human being, or any other living being, let's talk about human beings, both exist and live. We have an existence and we have a life. When God created the world, nothing existed. So he had to invent or create existence, giving non-existent things their existence. And then he gave every existing being a life. Fire and water, they both exist. And they exist the same way, simply by taking up space. But their lives are different. The life of fire is to give off warmth and light, The life of water is to keep things cool and make things grow. So your existence is simply your presence taking up space. Life means the effect, the influence, and the contribution that you are making while you're taking up space. And this is why people get depressed if they can't find a purpose to their life. Because really, it's their existence that is depressing. So when people say, what is the purpose of life, they're confused. Question is, what is the purpose of existing? And the answer is, life. The effect you have, the influence you have, the contribution you make, that's life. If you're not making a contribution, if you're having no effect, If you're not contributing anything, you're just existing, that becomes depressing. In fact, people who are convinced that they're not making a difference 
can't stand to continue existing. They become suicidal. So I was once talking to a young woman who was suicidal, and I shouldn't have been because I'm not an expert and I didn't know what I was talking about. And she says, I'm going to kill myself. I said, why? She says, because everything is meaningless. It's all meaningless. I said, well, if it's all meaningless, just sit. <laughs> why do you have to kill yourself? Sit quietly, you'll die sooner or later. As long as nothing means anything, what's the rush? <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't have a license because I would have taken it away. But why is it that if you think you don't have a life, you can't just continue to exist without one? You can't. It becomes very depressing. So life is what carries us. Our existence is what burdens us. So let's talk a little bit about the soul that is alive and the body that just exists and borrows life from the soul. So the soul is truly a living being and it can't die because life can't die. The body, on the other hand, has an existence. Remember the song, 100 Pounds of Clay? <laughs> That's what a body is. It gets a little life from the soul, but when they go their separate ways, the body only has an existence. The soul continues to live because it can't die. So just the other day we were saying Yisker, remembering and uh, relating to those who have passed away. This is for real. They are very much alive. In fact, they're more alive than we are because we have to exist also. They're just living, pure life. So how does it happen? What happens? What's going on? So we are told that the soul, which is a conscious living being, much greater than an angel, because every angel has only one personality trait. So you have, for example, the angel of kindness. It's a one-dimensional creature. All it has is kindness. It's a, a, an energy or a force of kindness. And then there's the energy of severity. And there's the energy of the angel of compassion. But each one has only one personality trait, only one character trait, and therefore can only fulfill one mission. It can't do two different things. The angel that destroys cannot heal. The angel that heals cannot destroy, because they're one-dimensional. A soul, a human soul, has ten qualities and other abilities, so it's a total, complete personality more like God. Now when the soul in heaven is told that it's going to be born, it's shocked. Because leaving heaven doesn't feel right. Coming down into a body, restricted by a body, that's, that's like imprisonment to the soul. So it really doesn't want to leave heaven. And, and it resists. But when God has veto power, when God insists that it has to be born, it humbly accepts its mission 
and allows itself to come into this world. Everywhere in the Bible, in the Torah, where somebody gave a blessing for a child, it always concludes with, this time next year, the child was born. Now, it doesn't take a year. Why not nine months? The nine months are the physical, is the physical development of the child. But the birth begins earlier. Forty days before conception, the soul is told that it's going to be born, get your act together, <laughs> say your goodbyes, because you're going down into the physical world. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an adjustment period, there's an introductory period, where the soul has to make peace with the fact that it's going to be born. Now, if you have babies, if you've given birth to babies, you know every baby is born with an issue. They already have a personality. Some children are born and they're just thrilled to be here. They enjoy life, they enjoy everything. Whatever you give them, they're happy, they're wonderful. And then there are some children who just can't be happy. They don't like it. They, they hate being overruled. <laughs> they didn't want to be born, they feel forced. They feel uh, imposed upon. And then when you expect them to clean up their room, <laughs> what, on top of me? No, this is already too much. I didn't even want to be born. Now i got to clean up a room? So they have to be like uh, enticed into life and get them to enjoy living. And some kids are, are, are miserable. Some kids are angry. Some kids are glad to be here. So they all come with a little baggage, depending on what happened at the beginning in their, in their adjustment to the idea. Now the soul comes into the body in stages. Of course, at conception, there's a major change. The first contact with the physical world. King David makes an amazing statement. He says in the, in the Psalms, in the Tillam, he says, My mother and father abandoned me, but God gathered me in. And uh, the meaning, what he was, what he was uh, referring to, conception takes place about two hours after intimacy, approximately. When the conception is actually happening, what are the parents doing? <laughs> They're sleeping. So King David remembers being conceived because saintly people, saintly souls, don't forget. They're not so traumatized by their birth. So they don't forget. He remembered being conceived. And here he is, this tiny little... doesn't even have a name yet. It's not even a fetus. And he's going through the most dramatic change, the most awesome. And he looks around to see who's in charge. And parents are sleeping. Just when I needed you the most. You abandoned me. But the soul is then comforted by the fact that God is very evident. God is very present, making sure that the nose goes where, you know, that everything works out right. So our first 
experience of faith is at the moment of conception. Because this is true of every birth. Any, any, what, what should we call it? Any conception survives the trauma, survives that, that shocking change because, because God is there and gives the, the, the soul the courage to go through this amazing change. Now a more famous psalm. Even as I go through the valley of death, I am not afraid, for you are with me. Probably the most popular psalm. What is this valley of death, and why does he go there? And again, the meaning of it is, he remembered his birth. The birth process is very much a valley with a shadow of death. Because the, the fetus leaves the womb where it had a wonderful life, <laughs> heavenly, is not yet breathing on his own, so he's not yet in this world. So he's between lives or between worlds, which is like a valley between mountains. And there's a shadow of death there because he's not breathing. So King David says, when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I was not afraid. It didn't traumatize me because you were with me. So this is the second time that every soul experiences a closeness and awareness of God, without which we wouldn't do so well. The trauma of birth would be more devastating than it already is. Now here's the fascinating thing. People who go through a near-death experience, you've heard the description of it, they see themselves going through a dark tunnel, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and there's an angel, all in white, urging them to come into the light. It's not an angel, it's a doctor. And it's not white, it's pale blue. And he's urging you to come into the light because he doesn't want to get sued. <laughs> For malpractice. But that is exactly what it is. The near-death experience is a flashback to birth. So birth is a near-death experience. And what happens when an adult goes through a near-death experience? He suddenly believes in God. Why? Why? Does belief in God come from trauma? If you haven't suffered enough, you're not going to believe in God? The flashback to the birth brings back two things. The fear, the shock, and the comfort that helped you survive that shock. I was not afraid because you were with me. So that original faith comes back, if a person had lost it, it comes back in the near-death experience because it's a, it's a re-experiencing, it's a flashback to that, to that moment. Now, the first contact, physical contact of the soul with a body is at conception. The first three months is a, is a particular stage of, of very delicate um, 
process. After three months, the process changes, becomes more tangible, more physical. At five months, there's another increase of connection between soul and body. At nine months, the connection is strong. And a month after birth, the connection is complete. So the soul connects to the body in gradual stages. It has to, because otherwise it would be too traumatic, too shocking. Even after a month, when we now know that the baby is viable, the process continues on a more spiritual level. The human being, the conscious human being, doesn't really have much contact with his soul. Like a child is uh, consumed with physical needs. But as he gets older, you start to see signs of a soul in this body. He wants to do you a favor. He gets upset over an injustice. This is soul activity. This is much better than eating and changing diapers. <laughs> At the time that a girl becomes 12 years old and a boy becomes 13 years old, the soul has settled in for keeps. Now, at the end of life, the reverse happens. Person doesn't die suddenly. First, he is notified on some subconscious level that he's going to die. You can see in many, many people, it's, it's literally obvious. They knew they were dying and they were ready. For other people, it's not so conscious. But unconsciously, something is happening. We had a, a, an older man in Minnesota who dedicated an ark for our Chabad, new Chabad house. He was in his 80s from Europe, and uh, he got up when we honored him. He got up to uh, talk about his contribution, his, uh, the ark that he... And he went off on a tangent, and he started talking about his childhood. He said, when I was six years old, I decided that I was old enough to fast on Yom Kippur. And I went to shul Yom Kippur morning, and I was very proud of myself. And one of the neighbors, one of the townspeople, said to me in the afternoon, you ate already? And I said, no. And he slapped me, and he said, go home and eat. That's how people used to care about each other. Another memory he has is when he started school. He started school, and his father, Friday night at the table, at the Shabbos meal, would uh, test him on what he had learned. And he was not pleased. Kid didn't know. The next week he tested him, and he did know. So that Shabbos, this was Friday night, Shabbos, when he met the teacher in shul, he was angry at the teacher. He screamed at him. He said, the first week when my child didn't know, I thought he was a dumb kid. Not your fault. But this Shabbos, he did know. 
So what happened the first week? <laughs> Be consistent. He's a smart kid. He should know every week. And he remembers hearing this, and it taught him a real lesson. Anyway, he reminisces about all his childhood memories, and he goes on and on, and like, this was not, well, this was not on, the, on the agenda, on the plan. And two weeks later, he passed away. He was healthy all the way. So somehow he knew. He was summarizing, he was reviewing his life because he felt that it was coming to a close. So death also happens in gradual stages. After the person gets the sense that he's going to pass away, then the soul starts to depart. Of course, at the moment of death, there's a break. But the soul doesn't leave so quickly. It hangs around. It likes its body. They've gotten to be close friends over the years. <laughs> the first three days of Shiva are very painful for the soul because it really doesn't want to leave. The next four days of the Shiva are a little easier because after three days you kind of accept the fact. But it still bothers you, it's still painful and so on. By the end of the Shiva, the soul has accepted the finality of, of death. But it still lingers for up to a month. At the end of the month, the soul is getting comfortable in heaven. And that takes about a year. By the end of the year, the soul is perfectly comfortable where it is, so we stop saying Kaddish. Because we say Kaddish to accompany the soul to its real rest. The funeral is only the beginning. In fact, the Shiva, when we sit Shiva for somebody, it's really part of the funeral. The funeral means accompany the soul to, to, the, to the cemetery. But we don't stop there. As the soul separates from the body, we experience it with the soul. Knowing the pain of the soul, we commiserate. As the pain of the soul eases, we ease back. And that's why Jewish law, Torah law says that at the end of seven days, you have to stop. Because if you don't stop, you're no longer in touch with that soul. Now you're crying for yourself. Because the soul has gotten comfortable. So stay in touch with what's happening with the soul. Of course, how do we know what's happening with the soul? Well, the Torah has to tell us. So we know now that there are these stages. There is the, prepara the preparation, the, the psychological adjustment. There's the moment of death. There's the first three days, the next four days, 30 days, and a year. Then every year, on the anniversary of the soul's departure, the soul is elevated to a higher place in heaven. So the journey continues. The higher the soul goes, the higher the people who are connected to that soul are drawn. So as the soul goes up, all its closest relatives 
and, and, and students, people over whom they've had influence, rise with them. So when we say Kaddish, even after many years, on the yard site, on the anniversary, it's not just the soul that is upgraded, but we're, we're in, to some degree, upgraded with them if we stay connected to them, if we don't forget. And that's why we say Yisker, and we promise to give charity for them because we want to have that connection. What can we do for them that they would want to do themselves but can't? They would love to improve life on earth, which is what charity is. Make life better for somebody on earth. So that's what happens when a person is born and when a person passes away. I want to share with you an amazing story. 50 years of talking to people, counseling people, listening to people, very meaningful, very satisfying. But certain moments stand out. Certain events are unusual. Probably the most amazing moment was a, a number of years ago. I was asked to come speak in Argentina. From Minnesota, the flight, from Minnesota to New York, from New York to Dallas, from Dallas to Buenos Aires, it was a miserable trip. I hate flying anyway. It was really long and it was horrible. By the time I landed in, in uh, Buenos Aires, I was not in a good mood. And I was looking forward to the rabbi picking me up at the airport and driving me to the hotel. The rabbi picks me up, we get into the car, we're driving along, and I'm looking forward to the hotel room, and he says, oh, uh, I arranged to stop on the way to the hotel. There's a woman who suffered a terrible tragedy. She's very depressed. She hasn't left her house in six months, but she now agreed to talk to you. So we arranged for you to talk to her on the way to the hotel. So we'll stop there and you'll talk to her. Oh, I was not happy. First of all, a woman suffered a terrible tragedy. What do you mean, talk to her? She's severely depressed. Talk to her. You, know, you talk to her. What do you say to somebody like that? And secondly, couldn't you at least ask me? Why didn't you even ask me? Maybe I'd agree to do it tomorrow night. Not on the way from the airport. But they didn't ask me. I was really upset. But the woman is waiting. They had already promised and arranged it, so we went. We come in there, and she tells me this tragic story. 19-year-old son was driving home from their summer cottage, and he got into a car accident, and he died. And she tells me how special he was. Different from the average kid, mature beyond his years, kind beyond belief. Really an amazing child. When she finishes, I said, wow, that's... And you had him for 19 years? <laughs> she didn't like that. So I, I said, I understand the shock is terrible. He was a healthy boy. There was no warning. All of a sudden, he's gone. The shock is terrible. 
But imagine if God had spoken to you in advance. If God had come to you and said, there is this incredible soul that needs to be born, and he's only going to live for 19 years. But I'm looking for a mother for this really special soul. And God would ask you, would you be this child's mother for 19 years? What would you have said? No shock, no surprise. I was sure that she would say, yes. She says, absolutely not. So just without thinking, I said, oh, then it's a good thing he didn't ask you. The flood of tears, the cathartic healing crisis, she cried a river and came back to life. When I walked in, her eyes were dull. She was barely among the living. Afterwards, she was back to life. It was so amazing to see this happen in front of my eyes. Going from, from lifeless to, to life, it was the most gratifying, the most amazing moment. Now we're in the car, going to the hotel room. And I'm thinking, I'm upset because they didn't ask me. <laughs> Why didn't you ask me? And if he had asked me, what, what would my answer have been? Absolutely not. And it would have been the wrong answer. So I realized that God is actually very kind to us that he doesn't ask because we would just embarrass ourselves with the wrong answer. When I, when I said this to her, spontaneously, instinctively, so it's a good thing he didn't ask. She finally realized, am I saying that I object to the 19 years I had with my son? That's ridiculous. How can I do that? If I don't appreciate the 19 years that I had with him, what am I complaining about? I'm only upset because I did have him and it was wonderful. And I would have liked it to continue. But if that wasn't wonderful, then what am I catching about? To the degree that you, that you appreciate life, to that degree you object to death. So if she had said no, and if God had listened, <laughs> and she would have missed out having this boy for 19 years, what, that, that would not have been a tragedy? And so she came back to life. God doesn't ask. He puts stuff on our plate, and he knows that we're going to handle it. We don't know that. So if he asked us, can you imagine if every challenge, every difficulty, God asked us beforehand, we would have said no to all of them. What kind of people would we be? Wimps, meaningless creatures. Because nothing serious would ever happen because if you ask me in advance, I say no. Oh, I don't need that. No, I don't want that. So God does us a really big favor by not asking us. It's a little painful, the surprises, the shock, but God knows that we can handle it. He has more confidence in us than we have in ourselves.
So this should be a blessing we should make in the morning, thanking God for the surprises. <laughs> Thank God for not asking so that we don't embarrass ourselves with the wrong answer. Right? There was an interesting event, more than interesting, powerful. I was in New York in the Rebbe's offices in Brooklyn, and people were arranging uh, rearranging an office, and they were lugging furniture, changing the office for some reason. So I pitch in, and I'm wheeling this um, uh, file cabinet on a two-wheeler, and the, the drawer slides open, and a manila folder falls out. We pick it up, and there's a single letter in this folder from a Jew in Manhattan who had written to the Rebbe asking for advice. Now the Rebbe answered hundreds of letters a day and he did it by, by putting his answer on the original letter in the margins or, and in very brief points, A, B, C. And then the secretary would type it up and make it flow like a letter. But the points were made very briefly. So the Rebbe's answer to this letter was on the letter itself. So we sat down to read it. The man writes to the Rebbe saying, I decided to, uh, to uh, hire a scribe, commission a scribe, to write a new Torah. Before you finish the last line, the last letters, you make a big party, you invite the community. It's a big celebration. And then you have a chuppah, like at a, like at a wedding, and you carry the Torah to the, to the ark, and you bring all the other Torahs out to greet the new Torah. It's a, it's a magnificent event. So this event was taking place in this man's house, in his apartment in Manhattan. One of the guests who were invited to the party was a young woman who at the party suffered an aneurysm, and before the ambulance could get there, she passed away right there at the party. Now he's writing to the Rebbe and he's saying, my faith is okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. But people are asking me, how do you explain this? A girl comes to a party of a Torah writing and dies? Now you know, when a person says, I'm okay, but my friends are asking. <laughs> you got to be a little suspicious, right? Some guy once came to the previous Rebbe in Europe, and he said, I want to repent. I want to do tshuva for committing adultery. Sorry. My, my friend is asking how he can do tshuva for committing adultery. So the Rebbe said, well, why didn't he come himself? So he said, well, obviously he's embarrassed. So the Rebbe said, he doesn't have to be embarrassed. He can come here and tell me that he has a friend who wants to know. <laughs> so the guy admitted that it was him. So he's asking, what should I tell my friends who want to know how something like this could happen? Where's the justice? Then he says, my second question is, why did it happen in my apartment? <laughs> 
So he was a little freaked out by the whole thing. <clears throat> the Rebbe's answer was so amazing that uh, there were six of us in the office then, and we just sat down stunned. It was so beautiful. The Rebbe writes like this. A, B, C, D, right? A. Why do human beings even think that they can understand God's ways? He's God. B. The Torah tells us to try to understand God. <laughs> so we have to try. C. Every soul that is born into this world is given a certain amount of years, days, minutes, and seconds. And the angel announces 40 days before the soul is conceived. This soul will live this long. Very, very rarely does that date change. You have to do something magnificent to increase the amount of years. You have to do something really evil, malevolent, to die before your time. People die the time that they were, that they were given. I mean, obviously, the angel makes an announcement that's not a guess. <laughs> it's not an estimation. Like the comedian says, you know the expiration date on a bottle of milk? How do they know that? <laughs> this milk will expire, what, the cow tell them or something? This is the exact date. So they're just guessing. But when the angel says, this is how long you're going to live, well, then that, that's how long you're going to live. Now, what are we up to? C, D, D. When the time comes, the day, the moment arrives, it can happen under many different circumstances, some better than others. For example, you're away from home in a foreign place, and you pass away. Nobody knows you. Nobody really cares. That's not so good. At home, surrounded by your, by your family, better, much better. Uh, let me see, the E. The last moments of a person's life, every detail becomes immense and significant. So it makes a huge difference. There was an elderly chassid, this is not in the letter, there was an elderly chassid from Israel who came to New York to be with the Rebbe for Yom Kippur. He was a special guy. He was honored to open the ark for Kol Nidre. He was making his way to the ark, and he collapsed and died. In the synagogue, on Yom Kippur, in the Rebbe's presence, in front of the ark, on his way to open the ark. All of his peers, all the old guys in, in the shoe, looked at each other and said, how did he arrange that? <laughs> How did he pull that off? What a way to go! You see, when you get to heaven, one of the things they ask you is, where are you coming from? And it could be embarrassing. This is good. Where am I coming from? I was on my way to open the ark. I don't know if it was Kipper. And There's a joke about a very Hasidic guy 
who decided that he's been Hasidic all his life. He's very curious about how the other side lives. So he shaved off his long payas, shaved off the beard, took off the black hat, and, the blue, and he went to a nightclub. He walked out of the nightclub late at night and was crossing the street, and a truck hit him, and he died. Now he comes to heaven, and he says to God, what is this? I was good all my life. One night, I just wanted to see. And you have to run me over with a truck? <laughs> so God takes a second look and says, wait a minute. Mendel, I didn't recognize you. I thought you were someone else. That's not so good. So, so everybody was jealous to die on Yom Kippur in the synagogue. On the, oh, come on. A few years later, a local chassid died in the synagogue on Simchas Torah in the middle of the dancing. And everyone said, that's even better. <laughs> he danced right into heaven. Say, hey, 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 I was in the middle of dancing. What are you doing, honey? That's good. So the circumstances are very significant. They can be good, they can be terrible, they can be wonderful. So, what should you tell your friends? Going back to the letter. What should you tell your friends? You should tell them that they saw a beautiful example of divine providence. This girl deserved to die under the best of circumstances. Her time came, but it could have been out in the street. Here she died at a party celebrating the conclusion of the Torah, and her life concludes with the conclusion of a Torah. And she's surrounded by doctors. The guy who wrote the letter was a doctor. Surrounded by doctors who cared, who tried to help her. And we cannot imagine how significant it is for a Jewish girl to know that she's breathing her last breath in a room that has a mezuzah on the door, and the mezuzah says, written in the mezuzah, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad. Because that's what you're supposed to say when you're passing away. And she couldn't say anything because she was suffering from an aneurysm. Knowing that the mezuzah says it, the Rebbe says, you can't imagine how meaningful that was to her. Now the clincher. According to the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev, the Rebbe writes, why do you think you got it into your head to write a Torah in the first place? For her. Now we're sitting there, stunned. I mean, the clarity of vision. What did we think? A girl comes to a party celebrating the conclusion of a Torah and she dies. Why? Why? This is what you get from coming to a party of a Torah? You think she died because she was there? You've got to see clearly. So we're sitting there marveling at the Rebbe's clarity of vision. The phone rings. There's a rabbi on the other line, on the other side, of, in the Midwest somewhere. He is in the middle of a bar mitzvah of his oldest son. His father had come to the bar mitzvah from Israel, was asked to say a few words, 
And in the middle of speaking, he collapsed and died of a heart attack. They're in the middle of the bar mitzvah, as live, live time. He's calling to, to ask the Rebbe, what should he do? Cancel the bar mitzvah? Call it off? Continue? What, what, what should he do? And how should he explain this to all the guests? <clears throat> now this was before there were faxes. So I said, grab a pencil. And we dictated the whole letter to him. And he went back and he read it to his guests. And, and the bar mitzvah continued. Now we were doubly excited. Wow, wasn't that great? Just when he needed that letter, it fell out of... And then we looked at each other and said, who decided to move furniture? Why are we moving furniture all of a sudden? So that, let, so that that letter would fall out? And I can tell you that to this day, that room never changed. They said they were going to make it into an office. It never happened. The whole thing was for that letter to fall out so that we can read it to the rabbi. So what we have from this is two things, three things. Number one, nobody dies by accident. The angel announces, and that's the way it happens. There's never a mistake. There's never an accident. It's never anybody's fault. There's a woman who said in, in class, we were... She said, you know, if I hadn't had an abortion, I would now have a five-year-old daughter, too. And I said, please, you're not God. If a five-year-old little girl was supposed to be alive today, there's nothing you could do about it. Don't play God. Yes, you made a bad decision, but don't think that you decide when someone is born or dies. Don't play God. Nobody dies because somebody made a bad decision. Every death is serious because every life is serious. So there is no dying by accident. There is no wrongful death. There's only the appointed time. Number two, when it happens, the circumstances make a big difference. So when it's nice, and when it's comfortable, and when it's, when it's supportive, and when it's holy, that's, that's wonderful. When it's martyrdom, like the six million who died, you say, well, they died miserable deaths. No, they didn't. They died martyr deaths. And there's nothing, there's, there's no better excuse for dying <laughs> than to die for a cause. The other thing is how we're supposed to look at life. We always look with such negative, critical, and, uh, and pessimistic view when life is not like that. We have to look with clear vision, with optimist, optimistic view, with a generous view, because life is good. It doesn't go sour at the last moment. So that's the story of the soul. When the soul comes to heaven, it is asked a few preliminary questions. Number one, did you have a family? Number two, were you honest in business? And number three, were you optimistic about the future? Those are just preliminary. 
Then they sit you down and go through every day of your life, and it can be very embarrassing. <laughs> and that's what we call hell. What exactly is hell? Some minister asked me once, do you believe in hell? I said, are you kidding? We invented it. <laughs> you stole it from us. But our picture of hell is very different from yours. First of all, hell is only for a short period of time, maximum 12 months. What is hell? Hell is simply when a soul comes back to the world of souls and it doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't remember how to be a soul. It got used to being a body. That discomfort, that embarrassment is hell. So burning means, I mean, how does a soul burn? On a bonfire? A soul burns with shame. It's, a, it's embarrassed. It smells like a body, and it's a little uncomfortable. But how long can that last? A week, a month, two months, maximum 12 months. By the end of 12 months, the memories of the body, of the physical, have faded, and now he's a soul among souls. Now he's in heaven. When a soul comes back and is immediately comfortable, as if it never left, that's paradise, right? So the soul goes through this readjustment from the pleasures of this world to the pleasures of that world, from physical pleasure to spiritual pleasure. Once it gets comfortable and is enjoying the pleasure of the world of souls, it's very happy. But it doesn't feel good over the fact that it can't serve God. We can do mitzvahs. We can serve God. Anytime we do anything to make this world better, that's God's plan, that's what God wants, that's what God needs. In heaven, you can't really do anything for God. God takes care of you. So your needs are taken care of, but you can't do for Him. So in Jewish thinking, heaven, paradise, is like a five-star retirement home. They give you everything you need. They take very good care of you. You're very comfortable. You've got no worries, no problems. But you're retired. And after a while, souls, particularly Jewish souls, get very restless. Okay, enough already. We want to go back to work. We want to be useful. So they're looking forward to the coming of Mashiach when the world will be pure and they'll be able to come back and serve God again. So heaven is a wonderful place, but temporary. That's why the expression, when somebody passes away, the expression, he's in a better place, not Jewish. He's in a comfortable place, but not better. This is better. That's why we don't make a big deal about going to heaven. We don't want to go to heaven. We don't want to go anywhere. We want to stay here. That's Jewish. There's this guy who had gout. It's very painful. And he's in the hospital, and in the bed next to him is a stoic. They train to be able to tolerate pain. 
He also had gout. The doctor comes in to examine the stoic. He presses his leg, his toe, and the guy doesn't make a sound. But then he turns it a little bit and presses again, and it's just too, the, he can't. And he screams in pain. Then the doctor goes to the next bed. He examines that patient, he squeezes, he turns it, he pokes it, nothing, not a sound. When the doctor leaves, the stoic says to the other patient, where did you train? Where did you learn to tolerate pain like that? The guy says, tolerate pain? I'm Jewish. I gave him the other foot. <laughs> We're not into tolerating pain. We're not into dying and going to heaven. We're staying here. This is the best place. Okay, if you can't stay here, where are you going to go? To Miami? You go to heaven. But it's not a better place. This is the best place. Now what happens when Mashiach comes? The souls will all come back into their bodies. Because the bodies should not be ignored. You cannot do a mitzvah without your body. So although the soul is the motivation for the mitzvah, but the actual performance of a mitzvah, you have to have a body. You can't eat matzah on Pesach without a body. You can't give a coin to charity without a body. You can't light candles. You can't put on tefillin. You can't. Every mitzvah, with very few exceptions, maybe six, involves a body. So the body must not be forgotten or neglected. The ultimate reward is going to happen when the soul comes back into its body and they are rewarded together as a team. That's called the resurrection. So in the, in the end of days, in the near future, all souls in heaven are going to come back to their bodies. And the body is going to be resurrected. The soul is alive all the time. But the body that decomposed is going to recompose, be, go back to being itself, and get its soul back and live forever. Because once you're resurrected, you don't die. So that is the, f the view, the picture of the future that Judaism promises. There's another phenomenon called reincarnation. Reincarnation means the soul that goes to heaven is judged. Did you fulfill the quota of goodness that you were supposed to accomplish? If not, you'll have another life, you'll be born again, you'll go through the whole process again, you'll have another 80, 70, whatever, 90 years, finish the job. If the second time you still haven't finished your job, you're given a third chance. So we have all been here before, maybe twice. That's why we feel like we were born tired. <laughs> we are tired. This is the third time around. And that's why one or two mitzvahs that we do may be all we're lacking from our past lives. So every mitzvah we do takes on a significance that we didn't have in the past. 
That's reincarnation. That's a different body, a newborn body. Resurrection means the body with which you did mitzvahs during your lifetime, that body deserves a reward. So it will resurrect, it will recompose, you know, like a film played backwards, like the bricks of the wall all fall down and then they all come back. So if he can do it once, he can do it again. So that's the, that's the reincarnation where the body finally gets its due reward for serving God and doing mitzvahs. That's what we know about souls, about life, about death. Any questions? Yeah. So, since the last topic was resurrection and reincarnation, so it's been around for a third time. Yeah, the ship comes and there's resurrection. Uh, can you explain, is it the final? body that is resurrected with the soul, or is the soul then in part of three different bodies? Yes. Somebody once suggested, you get to pick the best features of... <laughs> like a Mr. Potato Head, you know, you put it together. No, every body did mitzvahs, every body deserves a reward. So the soul will divide into three and animate all three bodies. Particularly, the part of the soul that was completed in this body will come back to this body. The part of the soul that completed itself in the second body will come back to its body. So if you did all your kindness in the first life, if you were very disciplined in your second life, if you were very compassionate in your third life, your first body will get the kindness, the second body will get the discipline, the third body will get the compassion. But each of them is an entire personality, not like an angel. Yeah? Are, the, are all three of the same sex or not necessarily? <laughs> not necessarily. In fact, most souls, maybe all souls, get to be a woman in one life and a man in another so that they can do all the mitzvahs. So when a woman says, why don't I have to put on tefillin? <laughs> you did already. <laughs> don't have to do it twice. Yeah? So once a Jew, always a Jew, or do you kind of reincarnate another? Once a Jew, always a Jew. And what about people that convert to Judaism? That soul that they receive at conversion has always been a Jew. And that's why a convert can say, for example, on Pesach, blessed are you, God, who performed miracles for my ancestors when they came out of Egypt. Now, what if her ancestors were Egyptians? <laughs> Imagine she's an Egyptian and she converts. And now she's going to say, my ancestors came out of Egypt? Yes, the soul that she now got was always Jewish, and it was this soul's ancestors that came out of Egypt. Also, a convert says, thank you, God, for commanding me to do this mitzvah. Well, you weren't commanded. You volunteered. That's why there's this expression describing converts, Jews by choice. You've heard this? Mm -hmm. A convert is a Jew by choice. Uh, not really. He had a choice until he became Jewish. Once he became Jewish, no choice. 
because you're a Jewish soul, and a Jewish soul is Jewish. No choice. Why should you be better off than us? <laughs> we have no choice. Why should the convert have a choice? There's no Jew by choice. Actually, we had this convert learned, studied, practiced, got ready, converted, and a few weeks after the conversion, she said to me, I, I don't know what happened. Till I converted, I was so excited about every mitzvah. I wanted to do it all and learn it all. Now, I don't know. I'm not interested anymore. What happened to me? I said, you became a Jew. <laughs> now you're like all of us. Any other question? Does a convert have soul before she or he converts that's not Jewish, and if they did, like when you get your Jewish soul at Sarah's your mother because you went to the mikvah, what happened to that other soul? Where did it go? Where is that soul? I mean, if there, I, I don't, I, maybe that's what I'm talking about. No. A Jew has two souls. You notice that Jews are a little schizophrenic, right? <laughs> Jews have two souls. We have a human soul, and we have a Jewish soul. If we didn't have a Jewish soul, we wouldn't be Jewish. If we didn't have a human soul, <laughs> we wouldn't be human. So we have a human soul, and we have a Jewish soul. What happens to a convert is that their human soul that they had all along feels incomplete. And it drives them insane in the need to become a Jew. When they become a Jew, they get the second soul, which is what makes them Jewish. Now, their original human soul has to adjust itself to the presence of a Jewish soul, and they have to get along, like with every Jew. So why are Jews sometimes good and sometimes not good? If their Jewish soul prevails, they're good. If their human soul prevails, they're just human. So you never lose your soul. Visnach? What about premonition of uh, death coming? Premonition is, is that, that preparation period. There's a premonition that you're going to be born in the soul, and there's a premonition when life is going to end. When it's a child of yours? Oh, a premonition of somebody else dying. Y yes. Oh. Has that soul developing? If you really need to know, you are told. Premonition means something. You know, you know how animals know when a tsunami is coming or an earthquake? Because it's already starting on a subtle level. You just have to be sensitive to pick it up. If you have a sensitivity, what is about to happen is already rumbling and you're picking it up. That's a premonition, usually in a dream, because your, your defenses are relaxed and you can pick up more sensitive stuff. Some people are so sensitive that they're always picking up stuff and it's driving them crazy. And they'd rather not know all this stuff. So one more thought. My father passed away two and a half years ago, and I sense that he comes to visit sometimes with very unusual and interesting events. What's your thought about that? How unusual? How unusual? Um, one thing was uh, when, he, when he died, it was during Shiva, and my mother was really missing him and said how much she was missing him. 
and um, it was the time that they would normally kiss goodnight before they went to bed, and at that same moment, a grandfather clock that hadn't worked in five years did a little, little, made its little sound, and it did it for the whole rest of Shiva, and then it stopped again. That's not as good as actually having a visit. That's just like a little hint. But so, sometimes souls who have passed away are given uh, a privilege, a, a gift, that they can commu communicate directly with their uh, family. And either in a dream or, or while awake, you actually see him or her. But when they have to send these little signals, it's not as good. But it's all real. It's, it, is not, it is not so unusual for a soul to visit a family member, particularly in a time of danger or emergency. It's not, it's not so rare at all. So what about a person like a medium who says they can communicate with those souls? Well, either they can or they can't. But, but if they say they can and they do and they give you a message from that soul, uh, it would be very real. It could be, but it's usually... If they're on television, no. No, I don't mean the one. <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean somebody, you know, the one... Just somebody holy? You could believe it. Just an ordinary person? I don't know. They may have some... They may have some um, intuitive whatever, but, but they're, they're always off a little bit. There's this joke about this medium who says... Yes, I'm getting a message from your father. He had an M in his name. And the guy said, no. He said, his first name, M? No. His second name, an M? No. Ah, his name was Jack Daniels, but it was Mr. Daniels. There's the M. Uh, you know, this is, they're very good at it, but it's, it's not real. Those who are real, and, and it can be real because the souls are there, there should be some way to communicate, but very, very few people have that where they see it clearly. Otherwise, they give you half information and it's, it's not worth it. When they say, yes, I hear your father, and he's saying everything is good, he's happy, and his dog is with him, no. Dogs go to a different place. <laughs> you don't take your dog with you to heaven. There's a dog heaven, but it doesn't. Yeah. So we're on the topic. Uh, if there is someone holier than someone who is capable of communicating with the soul, you know, um, is it then advisable to do so? To, to look for guidance, for advice, for blessings? No. no. There's a reason that we don't know these things. Now, unless you're really desperate, you don't go there. Also, these holy people who know, they're not allowed to tell. And when they do, they pay a price for it. So those who do tell to help others, they're actually sacrificing. They're going to pay for this. And they do it anyway because they want to help you. So you're, you're really tampering with some rules up there. Now you're wondering, how do I know all this? Well, first of all, I read it in Reader's Digest. <laughs> See, you laugh. 
Why, Reader's Digest doesn't know? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. The reason we know these things is because they've happened. This is not anybody's imagination. Souls have communicated. People have been in touch with, with souls in heaven. You know, the, the cynic says, how do you know that? Nobody's ever come back to tell. Oh, yes, they have. Of course they have. People come back. A near-death experience is almost there. Then there are people who literally die and come back. Or, or come back um, in a vision, in a, in, a, in a dream. But we hear from them. We're not making it up. It's all real. So, uh, no, more, no, more, no more questions? Okay, so let's talk about life instead of talking about death. We are here on an important mission. God created the world with a purpose, and that purpose must be fulfilled. But he can't do it without us. So we are his partners in creation. And he tells us how to achieve this ultimate goal, this vast eternal plan that he had for which he created the world. He gives us a Torah, 613 tools by which we can make this world godly, holier than heaven. Every time we do a mitzvah, it, it has a cosmic effect. Every blessing we make, every prayer, every good intention even, has cosmic effect. The world becomes better. And if you look at the headlines, what's going on in the world today, it seems like the world is getting worse every day. Really bad. Who remembers anything similar to ISIS? Destroying everything in sight, cutting people's heads off. This hadn't happened in a long time. Now it's happening. So is the world getting better or is it getting worse? I'd like to believe that because the world is about to emerge in its full beauty and its full fulfillment as a result of all the good that has been performed in the last 5,700 years, that the unholiness in the world is like in its last desperate effort to tilt the scale in the opposite direction. And it looks like desperation. They, they need to do something horrendously shocking, otherwise they get no attention. So they come up with more and more shocking things, but it's an act of desperation. So subconsciously they know it's over. The good is going to win, the truth will prevail, and the world will be godly and holy. And when that happens, when people admit their mistakes and their faults, they're going to turn to the Jew. And they're going to say, we try to improve on the Torah. Some try to improve by making it tougher. Like, don't, don't just give back what you stole. Chop off the guy's hand. 
they thought that would improve the morality of the world. And then others thought, no, you got to be a little softer. Don't have so many rules. Relax. That'll make the world better. And they both failed. Now they're going to come to the Jew and say, we tried to make it better, but we made it worse. So what was the original plan? You still know the original plan, right? Teach us. And we will teach. And then the world will be beautiful. The world will be healthy. The world will be sane. Because when Jews are the teachers, the whole world is perfect. So we've got to get ready, because people are going to knock on your door and say, you're Jewish, you know, right? What does God want me to do? And if you say, I don't know, they won't believe you. Of course you know, you're Jewish. You're the chosen people. There was a church group from South Dakota got into a bus and drove all the way to St. Paul and came to the Chabad house to ask questions and to whatever. I said, why do you do this? It's an eight-hour trip. Why do you do this? They said, we've done this for a number of years. Every year we pick a Jewish uh, organization or group and we visit. So last year we visited the conservative uh, temple. I said, how was that experience? He says, frankly, it was a little confusing. Because we asked, one of the kids asked the speaker, I think it was the assistant rabbi, what is it, how does it feel to be the chosen people? And this rabbi said, there are no chosen people. We are all the same. And he went into a rant about it. On the way back in the bus, the kids were discussing this experience, and they said, why did he lie to us? Doesn't he know we read the Bible? <laughs> of course they're the chosen people. Does he think we don't read the Bible? So they were very confused. We have tried for the last 500 years to deny that we're chosen. We just want to be like everybody else. The Jews in Germany. We're Germans. Leave us alone. We're good Germans. The Jews in Russia. We were the best communists. We invented communism. <laughs> we gave our lives for communism. Leave us alone. No, you're Jewish. So this denial, this argument, we are like everybody else, it's not working. It's not working. So we've got to try the other. Yes, we are chosen. Yes, we are the people of the book. Every page in the Bible says, speak to the children of Israel. Huh? Guess who? <laughs> we are the children of Israel. So I'm in, the, in a post, in a, in a, in an airport. I think it was Chicago. And this guy comes over, sits down next to me, and goes into a, a sermon. He's a missionary. And he gives me this little sermon for about 15 minutes about how every word in the Bible is true. It's the word of God. It's the Bible. And it's true. Every word is true. And he goes on for about 15 minutes, and it was nothing, nothing to disagree with. <laughs> At the end of 15 minutes, he says, so what is your relationship with the Bible? 
And he used the word relationship. I'm a Kohen, so I'm a descendant of Aaron. I said, my relationship? Aaron is my grandfather. Moses is my uncle. His mouth fell open, and he didn't know what to say. He was stunned speechless. He just finished telling me that every word in the Bible is true. So why was he so stunned when I said, I know, I'm the grandson? Why was he stunned? What he means by true is completely different. He means we truly believe. That's true, not for us. To, to other people, the, the Torah is the Bible, which means the ultimate book, the greatest of all books. What is it to us? To us, it's a family album. <laughs> Our name is on every page. We were good, we were bad, we upset God, we pleased God, we did this, we did that. It's all about us. Speak to the children of Israel. Huh. We're still here. That's us. Every Jew can trace himself back to somebody in the Bible. You are either from Yehuda or from Levi or from Yisrael. Trace yourself back. So, this is my final. I'm driving through the streets in Rome on the way to the airport. And the, the pedestrian traffic is just endless. Cars can't move. So I'm the taxi, and I said to the taxi driver, I'm going to miss my flight because of these Romans. He says, there are no Romans. There are no Romans. The only people who still exist from that time are the Jews. This is a non-Jewish taxi driver. The only people in Rome who can trace themselves back to those days unbroken, the Jews. So we are the people of the book, not because we read it. Unfortunately, we don't read it enough. <laughs> We are the people of the book because the book is about us, given to us. So when, when the world turns to us and says, what did God really say? They're not going to believe you if you say, I don't know. Of course you know. You're God's people. So let's not be afraid to shoulder that responsibility. Yes, we are. And yes, we should be better. As God's people, we should be perfect. But we're trying. It's not easy. It's been 3,000 years since we heard from God last. That's a long time. And they were not easy years either. If you would just stop and think for a moment. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? In the middle of the day, on a Tuesday. What are you doing here? Got nothing else to do? <laughs> You're sitting here being Jewish. If that is not the greatest miracle in the world, I don't know what is. God asked us to be Jewish 3,329 years ago. Hasn't said a word to us since. 
and we're still Jewish? This is miraculous. This is not normal. After 2,000 years of nothing but misery, we're still Jewish and want to be? How do you explain this? Today, any parent who tells his children, you know, we're Jewish, is a hero. Why did you say that? What difference does it make? Let it go. Ooh. Bob Dylan is from Minnesota. In the 60s, he converted to Christianity. You remember this? Started singing gospel songs. He went to Bible school. He was baptized in Pat Boone's swimming pool. <laughs> and he was a born-again Christian. He came to visit to Minnesota. His mother still lived in Minnesota at the time. And he had some childhood friends there. They were still in touch with each other. And his friend dragged him off to shul on a Shabbos afternoon. He was dressed a little unusual, especially for Shabbos. So the uh, people in the shul, having no idea who this was, assumed that he wasn't Jewish. I mean, who comes to shul in leather pants? So the guy in charge of the Kiddush walked over to him and said, we forgot to tear open this box before Shabbos. Could you tear it open for us? He was fuming. Why are you asking me to do it? Don't you know I'm Jewish? <laughs> well, I don't know. You told the world you became Christian. Oh, come on. I'm Jewish. Are we amazing or what? A Jew is a Jew. It's amazing. 3,000 years we don't hear from God, and, 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 and we still argue about him. 2,000 years of misery, and we're not going to stop being Jewish. Of course we're Jewish. Daniel Pearl, incredible. He was not particularly interested in being a Jew most of his life. But when it got serious, he needed to make the statement to the world. My parents are Jewish, I'm Jewish. I'm not denying it, and I'm not ashamed of it, I'm not apologizing for it. And if I'm dying because of it, I'll so be it. That's amazing. So enjoy it. Get together a lot. When Jews get together, good things happen. There's some bad, okay, whatever. <laughs> good things happen when Jews get together. Do it more often. Feel Jewish. Be proud to be a Jew. Let your neighbors know what you believe, what you stand for. They really need to hear it. They really do. Thanks for listening. If you want to support It's Good to Know in the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This is the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, changing your life for the better, one idea at a time. Like it, share it, and leave us a review. Tune in next week for more ideas that change the world.